0: Today we'll be discussing the late actor Andre Brower, and then we'll be discussing lung cancer. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, Ali and I will be discussing the career of the late Andre Brower, known from Brooklyn 99 and Homicide Life on the Street. Now, Brower died after a brief battle with lung cancer, so in our second half, we'll be discussing this disease. So a bit of a heavy topic to ring in the new year, Ali. But before we get to Andrew Brower and lung cancer. You want to wish me an amazing 2024? Yeah, exactly. Very excited for you to have a great 2024. <laughs> Hopefully mine Thank will be okay. But no, I wanted to reflect back on one of our episodes from the latter part of the year. This was some feedback we received from listeners regarding our top albums of 1993. A lot of discussion about this. A lot of discussion about the top movies of 1993, too.
1: Now, I'm not privy to this, like the way you are. I think you have our Gmail, DrVComedian at Gmail, forwarded to your email. So you get this. Did people give you a lot of grief, or did they give me a lot of grief? It's what a is bit, it?
0: it? It's a bit of column A and a bit of column How B. dare they? So Josh asked a very interesting question. He said... Was if I, was I 40 years old in 1993 based on my Solid. <laughs> listening choices back then? I don't know. That would make me like quite you. old now. But yeah, possibly, that's Josh, a great I'm comment. not going to tell you how old I am. Then an unnamed listener said this. All these top picks are pretty boring. Love your Matthew Sweet and Google Goo Dolls picks. My picks, that's what he means.
1: Mm. I'm willing to bet that's one of your best friends who wrote in, huh? That's somebody who you uh, went to kindergarten with or something. <laughs>
0: An unnamed it's the only listener. explanation for that. Anyway, so please uh, reach out to us. It's great to hear your feedback on this. We even heard back from Josh Maharaj, who was the chef we spoke about, who has anosmia, and she kind of reposted our episode and has some really nice things to say. And of course, she had feedback on our movies of 1993, (laughs) why we didn't include My Neighbor Tortoro. So everybody has input. We love to hear this from you guys, and it gives us ideas for other topics, as usual. It appears what we have is a classic whodunit. The phrase whodunit is a grammatical abomination. Please use the proper term, a who has done this. I will not. So Ali, Andre Brower died recently. It was quite a shock. You know, he was relatively young, only 61 years old, and died of very quick and brief battle with lung cancer. And we're going to talk about that in our second half. But I thought it'd be nice to get your thoughts on Andre Brouwer, when you were exposed to him initially as an actor. And I'll just put a little editorial in here. I don't know if people realize this, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which he is known, you know, predominantly for, especially by younger people. And it's a big deal. Both my kids, that's probably their favorite show. They've watched every episode many, many times. And it's a big deal to them. They were quite upset when Andre Brower died. He's just so excellent in this show. And so many good line readings and clips from the show. So it is tough. And I I don't think people realize that it does affect, you know, people who kind of grew up with this show. You know, it was on for like seven or eight years. And it was, you know, quite stable, at least in our household.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, you know... If I didn't have these experiences myself, I'd be quick to make fun of the children, of course. But, you know, it's kind of like what we're going through, what we have been going through with Michael J. Fox. Grew up with this guy. What do we... do? We don't really know Michael J. Fox. We don't know him as a human being. It doesn't... That's kind of not the point. It's somebody who you feel indebted to for the entertainment they've provided to you. You feel just an admiration for them as a human being, too, because of the caliber of their acting. That certainly is the case with Andre Brar. And he's also... I don't know. I mean, his acting was so good when he has these sort of touching moments and he's quite robotic at times and they make fun of him uh, in the precinct for it. When he would let you in, it was really like Mm -hmm. super, super heartwarming and a great actor not only lets their co-star in but also lets all the viewers in so in a way he he did draw us in and you can't really fault anybody for feeling bad about his passing i know i'm a big guy who's like you know i'm big on the um i'm a big guy that too i've been eating a lot over the holidays but also i'm very big on you know not worshiping celebrities you know they are human beings after all but yeah something about somebody entertaining you for years on the big screen you just, you hold them and there's, there's awe, there's love, there's admiration. And I mm-hmm. think it really helps too, as you see the, you know, obits and tributes that have come out. Good dude. Mm-hmm. Seems like he was a solid, wonderful guy. At least at the time that we were recording this, he could be retroactively canceled early in the, in, in, in the new year, I perhaps in so.
0: February. No, I don't think so either. Before offline, Ali, you told me you were looking up some stuff about his early life.
1: You know, as you look up his IMDB, you realize that, You've seen this man in like 50 things that you didn't, you know, fully appreciate at the time. Because I know him from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and uh, Homicide Life on the Streets, which I didn't watch regularly. But let's say I've watched 10 to 15 episodes uh, over the years. Yeah, sure. It's kind of like Law and Order, you know. There's Law and Order, like, fanatics. And then there's me, who's probably watched 20 different Law and Orders over the... You know, I I stay in hotels and motels alone. So I I watch things. (laughs) But yeah, he's done an incredible, he has a great body of work. And you notice based on when he was born in 1961, he starts acting in 1988. So I always look at that stuff at IMDb. I'm like, why did he start a little Mm. bit later and he's Mm. not working at 21, 22, 20? That is because, unbeknownst to me, he was majoring in engineering and then switched to acting. I think a, a friend of him asked if he would kind of help out in some sort of play or something. And he just enjoyed it so much Mm -hmm. because he said, uh, you know, there's a variety uh, article that we'll, we'll share also on our posts. But in that article, he said, you know, engineering was me and my calculator and it was uh, a pretty lonesome work. And then all of a sudden you can see if, if you have an interest and an inclination towards acting, which he did, which he didn't know about. And all of a sudden you have this supportive ensemble and people you're working with. So he moved to a BA in theater After engineering, although I think he left engineering to get a BA in theater instead. And then he moved on from Stanford University to Juilliard. Juilliard, if you don't know, know, highly, highly regarded arts university. Uh, So Juilliard's drama division, and he graduated in 1988. You take that into account and you go, what the heck? And he's working in 88, graduates, getting work. I mean, that speaks to his... Talents, definitely. And you see, go through IMDb and see some of the stuff that this
0: guy was doing. Pretty impressive roles
1: right out of the gate.
0: Yeah, I didn't really realize that because in 1989, he was in Glory. Glory is this movie with Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, about a black regiment fighting in the Civil War. I mean, a great movie. I love that movie. And... I forgot that he was in it. So I watched the clip from it. We'll link to that as well. He was great. He plays a free, educated black man who decides to join this first black regiment in the Union Army. Great scene. I'll link to it. It's awesome. I won't ruin anything for it, but I forgot he was in that. So this is right after Juilliard. He gets a role in a huge movie that was Oscar nominated.
1: He has a quote from his father, which many, many young creatives can relate to, I'm sure. His father, who was heavy equipment operator, mother was a postal worker, you know, blue collar workers in Chicago, and his father was like, actor, show me a black actor who who is earning a living. What the hell are you going to do, juggle and travel the country? And luckily for Andre, he was able to show his father that he had something more to offer quite soon after graduation. But I know a lot of people in the creative world who've heard similar thing from their parents, particularly immigrant parents who are like, you know, seniority and I don't even know the words, you know? I'm a creative. But what's that thing you get when you... A pension, that's the word. Mm, I'm
0: looking for. Right. Those kind of things, you know? Ellie <laughs> and I are both self-employed, so we will never have those. He did a couple other things after Gloria. He was in the revival of Kojak on ABC. He was Kojak's sidekick. And then he did Homicide Life on the Street, which he won an Emmy for in 1998. I never watched Homicide Life on the Street. I know its DNA is in so many other shows, namely Oz, Law & Order, and of course, The Wire, right? Because David Simon wrote for uh, Homicide Life on the Street. Mm -hmm. And I never watched it. It just seemed too like adult in quotation marks for me and too complicated when it was on TV. I'm like, I always heard about it. Everybody said it was one of the best shows on television. I just never watched it. I've never seen an episode, which is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. I understood nothing that was happening ever (laughs) in that show. I'll just, uh, I'll add that. It's, it is, it is like, you have to be fully focused. You can't be sort of multitasking and watching that show. Or at least that's how I remember it in the nineties. And one interesting thing is, you know, where I, I know Andre Brar from Kojak's sidekick, you know, sidekick. I watched that in Saudi Arabia when I went to visit my dad, who was on a a sabbatical slash midlife crisis, and he'd moved away to Saudi Arabia for two years. And Saudi Arabia, especially in the 80s, they were very particular about what they show on television no sexual content <laughs> and Kojak, I guess he never got none. So there was no sexual content or if there was some woman came close and then boom, next day, it was uh, very easy to edit out. But I was in Saudi Arabia watching wow. a young laundry Brower wow. that I would not, you know, would not have remembered if not for,
0: well, this is the thing. Cause he was in a lot of other shows that I now in hindsight, I realized that was him. So he was in house MD, which I've probably seen every episode of. And he played yeah. a psychiatrist that helps house recover from his Vicodin addiction. Which, you know, kind of spiraled out of control. I remember as that too. series went on. He was in this show, which I never saw again. I heard a lot about men of a certain age with Ray Romano, Scott Bakula. He was on TNT Network. He was nominated for Ray Romano, a fantastic content. actor as well, by the way. It's really interesting. We're linked to some of these things where Ray Romano talks about Andre Brower and he's like, I was learning drama from him, and he was learning comedy from me, and we switched places almost during the course. Because it. it was a drama, so a dramedy, I guess. And so they kind of switched places almost. It was really interesting comments from Greg uh, Romano. Greg Romano only has nice things, obviously, to say about Andre Brower. And of course, I was excited because he voiced the villain Darkseid in the DC animated film Superman, Batman, Apocalypse. So very exciting that he played Darkseid.
1: Should we pause the show while we let you handle your incredible excitement over that fact? No, I don't think we should. I think we can move on. What else did he do?
0: So, I mean, this is then. After this, he did Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I was into Brooklyn Nine-Nine at the beginning because it was made by Michael Schur and Dan Gurr, who actually were... Friends and writers and, who met at Harvard, and then they eventually collaborated on Parks and Recreation. And they thought that police precinct as a setting was not actually used very much in comedies. And they said Barney Miller. And can we name another one other than Barney Miller? It's it's hard, right? Barney Miller, another show I never watched a lot of. You must have watched, watched a lot. Oh of man, comedy. my
1: dad was hooked. Mash and Barney Miller. If I came down, I was like, "Can we change the channel?" My dad would be like, "The hell are you talking about? It's my TV." <laughs> I pay the mortgage in this house. We're watching Barney Miller. He didn't say that, but in his uh, mannerisms, it was very clear that we're not changing the channel. Yeah, no, I, I've watched a lot of Barney Miller on the sidelines. I, I think it was a great show. I think it was. I just was too young to fully appreciate it. Yeah, yeah
0: same, same here. It, it intimidated me. But Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so I, I've watched every episode. I started watching from the beginning. And like I said, my kids are into it now. I think you know, it's such a fun concept, this workplace comedy. Again, they're kind of moving from parks and recreation, working in the public service, to this police precinct. And I really liked Andre Brower's character as soon as I saw him, because I got what they were doing. They're taking this dramatic actor and like doing the comedy. So he's a serious, stern person. But then they added all these layers to him. You know, he was obviously a black captain. He was openly gay, and eventually, through the course of the series, they talk about how this affected him. And, and again, it's not all laid out at the beginning, but slowly you learn more and more about his character over time. You know, yeah. Andre Brower said he liked the character and liked the fact that he was gay, but it wasn't a defining aspect of him. It was one part of his, you know, personhood. And so that was that was very interesting. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions, Ali, about Andre Brower. There's some quotes from Andy Samberg, and I thought they were quite interesting. He was saying that Andre Braugher, this is Andy Samberg talking about it, he said, Andre would have you believe he had no comedic skills before the show started, but we all know that's not true. That said, he's gotten even better as the seasons have gone on. And often when he's concerned that a joke is sacrificing the greater good, his instincts are correct. What is he getting at there, do you, in terms of your experience in, Comedy TV shows?
1: This is what I get from that. And I don't know if this is 100% correct, but I feel like the greater good is a great episode, mm-hmm. a great scene, something that suggests the dynamic between two, three, multiple actors going forward. You know, as you're moving mm-hmm. story forward, as you're moving an arc of a season forward. And if you get too jokey, even though it's a comedy, There's an opportunity that gets missed, something that that benefits the whole show. So when he says greater, I don't know if he's talking about the show as a whole or the scene as a whole. And so I think that's a guy, yeah, with his particular training... He would be the person to be like, let's do something that benefits the entire ensemble mm-hmm. and show. Yeah,
0: kind of think of everyone, not just this yeah. this moment in time, which maybe it's a hilarious joke, but it may not help things going down. Yeah, oh. and
1: I think also, you know, it reminds me of like in, in comedy, I've done a lot of hosting. We've talked about this on, on our podcast. Hosting is, you know, for some people, just a completely forgotten skill. In the U.S., you have clubs where you don't even have a host. Mm. I think I told you about this where one time I went to a club in the U S and the person, the MC was a woman who had put her name in a box the week before she was an audience member. And then she was called back to host. She like won the hosting spot and she stank obviously as she should have. She had no training whatsoever to do that. The only laugh she got was when one of her multiple jokes bombed and she was like, oh my God, I'm going to kill my daughter. She told me that was funny. And then everyone Hmm. laughed at her daughter and that was it. But hosting is about serving the show, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have somebody who's really high energy and great out of the gate, but then the comic after them is a little bit low energy and a different style of comedy, you as the MC, in my opinion, should be there to cleanse the palate, right? Do something that brings the energy down a little bit or forget about what they just saw so that you can move forward. And I think that's maybe the instinct he has too. Like, let's not make this all about this person and their jokes and this, you know, wild, crazy moment. Let's make this about the show as a whole. And so it's, it does suggest a bit of a, a selflessness as well. And one thing we should mention, which Variety would never mention this because Variety wouldn't give a flying fart about Shakespeare, but he started his acting career, Andre Brower. If you look at Wikipedia, it was, it was Shakespeare, right? Mm-hmm. Public theater, Shakespeare in the park, 12th night, Hamlet, as you like it much ado about nothing. Coriolanus, he doing that still while getting acting roles. He was doing that until about 2012. And so that's the man who would be the perfectionist. That's mm-hmm. the man who wouldn't necessarily be inclined towards the quick laugh and the comedy. So it sort of all fits
0: with who he is. It totally makes sense. And he won an Obie Award for playing Henry V. So this guy mm-hmm. is like, you know, an actor, <laughs> like capital A, right? Yeah. But it's true because Andy Sandberg says that he is, he being Andrew Brower, is a perfectionist. And he expects the best, This is a quote, becks the people morally and performance-wise, but he's not condescending. So I thought that was very interesting because, Ali, Ali, you've worked with lots of people over the years in the entertainment biz. That seems like a hard balance to have high expectation of yourself and of your coworkers, but to not think you're better than them. And, and you know, I'm patronizing, I can imagine, that you know, like kind of really turning people off.
1: Yeah, that is a tough balance, especially if you're the person who comes in prepared every day, your lines are learned, you know exactly what you're doing. You're really like, the lines are no longer an issue. Those are learned. Now you're looking for the emotion. Now you're looking for how to get the most out of a scene with, you know, the dynamic, with a look, with, you know, emotion, something physical, but you know your lines. And another actor doesn't fully know their lines. The lines are written on a paper and it's called your sides. Their sides are in their back pocket as they're delivering the lines. It's quite a dichotomy between the two. And I think I've spoke about this on the show. The few episodes I did of Designated Survivor working with Kiefer Sutherland, we all got, every actor gets an email from their agent saying they would like you to be totally off book. And that takes that takes work. That takes work. You don't have your net. You're not going to be able to go and reach for your, your sides. Off
0: book means everything's memorized. You're not looking at your script in between. No.
1: Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, his preference was, I don't want to see anybody scrambling through papers seconds and minutes before the scene. Just be off book. And it's a different approach. It's a different approach. If you're used to being like, I'm just going to have my sides here on the side and between takes, I can just walk over and read the lines. That is very different from being completely off book and you have to prepare thoroughly. So how do you as a person who's done that preparation deal with people who lack that preparation? Typically, I would say some kind of condescension or a scolding or something, but the fact that he didn't do it, I mean, even more credit to Andre Brower.
0: So just to wrap up then, Ali, what are your kind of like overall thoughts of Andre Brouwer and his career?
1: I mean, you know, as we discussed in the next section, he was a very private person. So we don't know too much about his life. Like when you link to his wife and his three children, there's no further links. You yeah. don't find out who his children are, what they're doing. Very private person. And man, I, I'm giving even more respect for that, right? In this in this day and age of everybody trying to show off and, and show and prove something about themselves, he had nothing to prove. And he left it all there sort of on screen or on stage. So I just feel like, I don't know, without sounding too corny, there's a lot to be learned from Andre Brouwer and how he approached life and, you know, took his profession seriously. And yeah, feels like we definitely lost a good one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, you really accomplished so much. Again, he has gone too soon, but again, we talked about dramatic actor, Broadway actor, theater actor, television actor, two Emmy Awards. Obie Award, really amazing. And his legacy, like I said, you know, the next generation is going to know about him as an actor because of his work on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But I think what you said, Ali, about him as a person really speaks to me. A lot of praise, of course, has come out from his co-stars on Brooklyn Nine-Nine since he passed away. And very interesting, people talk about him being a family man. And I guess they shot Brooklyn Nine-Nine in Los Angeles, not in New York, as people may have thought. They shot it in L.A., Mm. But his family, I think, was from, I think they lived in New Jersey, and he flew home every weekend to see his family, because that was the priority for him. He would never just, oh, it's so long, I'm going to hang around in Los Angeles for the weekend. He never did that. And you hear his co-workers talking about how important it is to him to model how important family is. So I think it says a lot about him as a person.
1: So we are talking about lung cancer today because it is what took Andre Brouwer's life. And so it's related in that way. I personally have experience with my father having had lung cancer. He had it contained in a tumor, but required a lobectomy. One lobe of his lung was removed as a result of it. Lung cancer is an interesting thing. It's like, I mean, interesting in the regard that when you are a smoker, you are told in no uncertain terms that this will almost certainly cause lung cancer. So there's a real, like, you know, with some exceptions, of course, people are like, you know, this person got lung cancer because either they smoked or they worked somewhere in certain conditions, and that's why. And it, it's one of the cancers that makes sense, quote unquote. Mm-hmm right nobody goes mm-hmm. i can't believe they smoked for 40 years and they got lung cancer this is ridiculous we know it we all know it as mm-hmm. i used to watch my dad smoke i'd be like this guy's going to get lung cancer i was prepared for it unlike so many cancers that are you know no one can say why it True. happened right so so there is something there about lung cancer that i find it's a weird like satisfaction you're because there's so much that doesn't make sense it's one of the few that makes sense however that said I'm seeing lung cancer take people quite quickly Mm -hmm. more and more often, which I don't know if that was it. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit, about the time frame of how quickly some people die from diagnosis to death. And also, you know, to talk about how common it is and how common it is for people who don't have any of those risk factors. Mm -hmm. Is is that still... Or is that a dated idea that I have? So let's talk about how common lung cancer is in the population in general and maybe among cancers too.
0: Yeah, sure. One thing about Andre Brower, by the way, he, as you mentioned in the previous section, he was very, very private, but he did apparently stop drinking alcohol and smoking in 2010. So like quite a while ago. 13 years ago. And so we'll talk about that. You know, when you quit smoking, what are your chances? But we'll talk about that a bit later. Sure. So it is the most commonly diagnosed cancer worldwide. So 12.4% of all cancers diagnosed worldwide. It's the leading cause of cancer related deaths. And if you think about here in Canada, it causes 25.5% of all cancer related deaths. And it has the highest mortality rate because of that. The five-year survival rate is only 19%. And we'll talk a bit about that in a second. Same thing in the States. It's one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in the U.S. since 1987, lung cancer has been responsible for more deaths in women than breast cancer. And one thing that's very interesting is lung cancer was relatively rare at the beginning of the 20th century. And then it began to increase. And so Ali already said the reason why. It's because of smoking. And so in answer to your question before, smoking is the most common cause of lung cancer. In 90% of lung cancer patients, it's attributable to smoking.
1: I also, you know, as a, I don't know if corollary is the right word here, but if we didn't have smokers and then smoking came in and then lung cancer increased... I'm also curious, and I don't know if you'll have the answer, but hopefully we'll get to this at some point. Now that smoking is definitely on the decline in Western countries anyway, have we seen corresponding declines or have things like vaping come in to kind of level it off? Yeah, not yet. I
0: think we still have to see what happens with that as smoking declines. The problem is, of course, people who are still alive have smoked for years and they'll still be doing it. So I think we'll have to look at the younger population to see, but- It's interesting when you talk about 90%, that means 10% are not attributable to smoking. And, you know, I know, I knew someone who died in their 20s from lung cancer and never smoked. The other thing that's concerning, Ali, is you could say, well, I never smoked. And that's the reason. And and so I, I, you know, why would I get lung cancer? I've never smoked. But secondhand smoke can increase your risk of lung cancer by as much as 30%. So something we don't think about, right?
1: I mean, I thought about it all the time. Because your father's exposed to my father's smoking, but yes, generally, probably people don't.
0: The other thing is, other carcinogens, you know, especially if you smoke and are exposed to other carcinogens, that can increase your risk of radiation or asbestos, right? That's a big thing. And if you've had radiation for non lung cancer treatment, so, like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, again, these are things that Ali and I know because our friends have had these and relatives have had these disorders. Our breast cancer—that's going to increase your risk of lung cancer because of that field of radiation is obviously really close to your lungs. And exposure to some heavy metals, so chromium, nickel, arsenic, what are called aromatic hydrocarbons—these things. So, if you are a work of those in your field, right, that could increase your risk, and. Diseases like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis can increase your risk of lung cancer independent of smoking because we know smoking can cause both of those. And if you go one of our old episodes where Ali was reading stuff from his memoir, an excerpt from his memoir, he talks about how his father did also have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Again, had lung cancer, pulmonary fibrosis, also smoked, but these can be mm-hmm. independent risk factors. So in terms of how the smoke causes lung cancer, that's what's a bit complicated and still being studied. It's thought that the carcinogens in cigarette smoke causes dysplasia or kind of malformation of your lung cells, the epithelium that lines your lungs, and that can lead to genetic mutations, affect protein synthesis, and then cancer subsequently occurs. And you also may have heard, just so we can get this out of the way, that there are different types of lung cancer. They're broadly differentiated into small cell lung cancer, which is about 15% of all cases, and then non-small cell lung cancer, which can be further divided into adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, et cetera. The bottom line of those is they're both bad, but the small cell lung cancer is worse. That's a very short story about that. Okay, even though it's only 15% mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: all of it is bad, small Correct. cell is even worse. Correct. Okay. What are the symptoms? When do you start worrying that you might have lung cancer?
0: Well, so this is the problem. I think we should just start off with the bad news about this. More than half of lung cancers are metastatic at diagnosis. What, again, that means is you have the lung cancer in your lungs and it spreads to other organs. And once cancer has metastasized, it is definitely a poorer prognosis, okay? And so they can metastasize to the brain, your bones, your liver, Even your adrenal glands; these are what secrete like adrenaline. Oh, this is why
1: it's like a less than twenty percent survival Survival. rate after exactly
0: because it's already so progressed in so many people. But initial symptoms, cough in fifty to seventy five percent. It's so funny, eh? not in everybody who has lung cancer, right? It just Mm. does. It's just funny that that's the case, and there are some tumors called mucinous adenocarcinoma, and they secrete mucus. So if you have really watery mucus, coughing up that all the time, like lots of fluid coming out, then that could be an indication of this mucinous adenocarcinoma. Hemoptysis is coughing up blood, and that occurs in 15 to 30% of patients. So not a lot. I mean, if you coughed up blood, you'd be pretty concerned, but it's it's a minority of patients chest pain in 20 to 40%, and difficulty breathing in 25 to 40%. So you can see these are not in everybody and they're vague symptoms. Sometimes you can have more specific symptoms. There's something in medicine called the superior vena cava syndrome, where you have the lung cancer pushing on some veins in your upper chest and neck. So you can get dilated neck veins, so really prominent veins in your neck, and then swelling of your face and your upper extremities And, you know, that could give your doctor a clue as to what might be going on. And, of course, if it's spread to your bones, you could have bone pain. If it spreads to your brain, you might have cognitive dysfunction or seizures or weakness. A lot of the bone pain often comes to your spine and vertebral bodies, so it could be back pain. But then, again, as Ali knows, again, from our personal experience with our friends who've had cancers that spread to their bones you know, you just dismiss that. We all, oh, my back's hurting. It's probably because I'm out of shape. I got to work out more. I, I t- picked up something. You know, we don't, we don't think the first thing that could be, it would be cancer, right? And in terms of the brain, spreading to the brain, the small cell lung cancer, it happens more often than some of the other ones. And as much as 20 to 30% of patients, when they're diagnosed of, for small spell, already have brain metastases.
1: So if you do suspect lung cancer, based on those various symptoms. What are the steps of diagnosing lung cancer?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, if you're a physician, most people would see their family doctor first. If they're suspicious of it, they may do x-rays and they'll examine you. But eventually, to really determine it, if you're very suspicious of it, they would have a CT scan of the chest and upper abdomen to look for all these areas. And then eventually, and this might need to be ordered by a internal medicine doctor or an oncologist, a PET scan or a PET CT, because these show areas of active disease. And then eventually, if that's, if they are very suspicious of cancer, then you will have to have some sort of invasive staging, which will, you need to obtain a tissue diagnosis for the cancer and then look at it under a microscope. So that could be with what's called a bronchoscopy, where they put a tube down your airways and, and take a piece of the lung where the tumor is, or you sometimes people need to have surgery for that. And again, I'm simplifying things, but you might have to go to those those stages of testing.
1: And then what is the treatment? Obviously. It's not great given the uh, low survival rate, but what do they try?
0: Yeah, it's tough. And Again, they divide this up into small cell and non-small cell. But small cell, like I said, is very aggressive. If you do not treat extensive small cell lung cancer then you will die within a few weeks. And this is what we have seen. Again, Ali and I, I think everybody knows people whose their relatives or friends have died with a very short window of time after being diagnosed. So, you know, if it's localized and it hasn't spread a lot, you could have surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. So those are options. But if it's spread, maybe radiation, maybe chemotherapy, but that would be what, or immunotherapy, but that would be what we call palliative treatment. It's to decrease the symptoms, but you're not going to be cured of your lung cancer if it spreads so much. The non-small cell, again, if it's localized and hasn't moved, then surgery or radiosurgery might happen. And as they get bigger, then you may need radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, etc.
1: What does somebody who, let's say, smoked in the past or worked in some you know, factory with whatever it is, asbestos or other chemicals, somebody wants to screen for it regularly. Is that something you can do?
0: Yeah, so it's funny. The Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare recommends screening for lung cancer with a low-dose CT scan of your chest every few years in adults who are between 50 and 75, current smokers or former smokers who quit in the past 15 years and have smoked what's called 30 pack years. So a pack year is how we consolidate the amount of time you smoked and the the amount, the physical amount. So one pack a day for 30 years would be 30 pack years or two packs a day for 15 years, right? So you just do the multiplication, right? And so they recommend that those patients be screened. Now, the problem is these are recommendations that are Canadian-wide, but in Canada, healthcare is governed by provinces. So not every province does it. I believe, and again, I'm not an expert on this, I believe it's three provinces which either have testing going on for this type of screening or are doing a pilot project. I believe it's British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. I may be wrong about that, so I apologize to my friends who are oncologists or pulmonologists if I'm getting that wrong. But So it's not widespread, but this is what could happen. So in other words, just because a screening program isn't in place, family doctors could, or internal medicine specialists could say, you know what, I'm just going to do this. My patient falls in this category. I'm going to order a CT for them every three years to screen for this, right? Because as we've talked about, you'd want to, this picked up earlier rather than later for sure, right? Sure. Based on the risks. Okay. But you could ask for it if you have some of these risk factors, but yeah. if somebody
1: comes in who's just got a sort of general paranoia about it, you know, I was a kid, my father smoked when I was a kid, I might've gotten secondhand smoke from my dad. That's not enough to...
0: Justify It wouldn't be recommended. Again, every decision is individual with you and your doctor, but it wouldn't be part of these recommendations because you don't fall into those categories, yeah.
1: Obviously, you know, this is one of those things, the best recommendation, if you don't want to have lung cancer, the top recommendation must be quit smoking.
0: Yeah, and so if you look at the studies, there's a one big study from 2013 from the New England Journal of Medicine that says quitting before the age of 40 – reduces your chance of dying prematurely from a smoking-related disease by 90%, and quitting by age 54 still reduces your chance by two-thirds. So it's important if you're smoking for all you have to try and quit as soon as possible. We also know that smoking, it doesn't just cause lung cancer. It can cause larynx cancer, so your voice box, oral cancer of your oral cavity and pharynx. Again, Ali and I know about this because oral cancers are quite common in India, esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, bladder cancer, stomach cancer, colon cancer, rectal cancer, liver cancer, cervical cancer, kidney cancer, and a type of leukemia called AML. So it will decrease all of those over time. So Mm. a lot of those things, after five to 10 years of quitting, you can reduce this risk for uh, laryngeal cancer, oral cancer. After 10 years, you reduce your risk of bladder cancer, esophageal cancer, kidney cancers, And then after 10 to 15 years after quitting, you reduce your risk of lung cancer by half. So it's important, right? The earlier people can quit, the longer they can quit for, the more they're going to reduce their chances later on of having cancer. So I can't really speak to what happened with Andre. You know, we assume that, I don't know, what kind of specific kind of lung cancer he had. He certainly had a a very brief struggle with, with the illness, so we would assume that he had probably metastases in different areas because he passed away so quickly maybe it was a small cell we talked about how aggressive that can be it is very sad and i think it just reinforces what you were saying ali you know screening if you fall into those categories and definitely um quitting smoking if it's at all possible for people So that's our episode for today. Let us know what you guys thought.
1: Yeah, let us know if you enjoy the way Osif kicks off the new year, huh? With an episode about lung cancer. I was hoping to start on something hopeful, let the record show. But we both love Andre Brower, and so this made sense.
0: And it is hopeful. Again, there is the potential for people to quit smoking and end up improving their (laughs) health. And we should probably do a whole episode in the future about smoking, quitting smoking, etc., so reach out to us, DrVComedian at gmail.com, DrVComedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. But remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye and happy new year.